Welcome, Erev Tov. <laughs> we are uh, together again for our Jewish mysticism class. And the book that we're using is Jewish Mysticism and the Spiritual Life, Classical Texts, Contemporary Reflections. Uh, and we are coming to the end of our study in this book. If you want to find previous podcasts, you can go to iTunes, you can go to rki.org and look at the learning tab. And under the learning tab, it will say podcasts. And you can find this and many other classes, this series of classes, but other classes that we've done as well. Um, what we're trying to do is create all kinds of ways of learning together. So this is wonderful that you're here tonight. This is what we want most of all, obviously, is to be in a sacred space and learning together face-to-face, voice-to-voice, heart-to-heart. And it's, if you liked it, it's like also nice to be able to say, oh, right, there's that KI series that I could turn on the ones that I missed and connect to us that way. So in the book that uh, I mentioned, Jewish Mysticism and the Spiritual Life, we are this week looking at page 201, if you have the book. If not, you have the article printed for you. As always, I've given you a sheet that Bert will put up as a PDF Online, So anyone who listens to the class online will also have the PDF available of my notes. So you don't have to furiously try to take notes to figure out like what you can write on the back. Please do your furious comments and thoughts and intuition, right? Things that come to mind, but you don't have to track the facts because I've, when I studied, I'm like, what? Like I, every time I say what, I write it down um, so that you can have it as well. All right, remember, remember what we're doing here. We are studying Kabbalah. We are studying Jewish mysticism. The misnomer is the Kabbalah. There is no the Kabbalah. Kabbalah means what is received. So there's a lot of mystical literature that has been written and that we have received. There isn't the Kabbalah like it's one book and then there's commentary on the book. There's just Kabbalah, that which we have received. So this is one of the places uh, that gets kind of confusing is what is Kabbalah and what is Jewish mysticism and where do I find that book? What's the ISBN number so I can order it on Amazon, right? That is a huge misnomer. So um, the other thing we're doing tonight is we are looking at Kabbalistic ideas as refracted through the lens of Hasidism. Hasidism is neo-Kabbalah, right? Kabbalah is well, as early as, as it goes as, you know, 900, 1000, 1100. But really, you Lurianic Kabbalah, the one we're most familiar with, you know, we're talking 15, 16, 1700. We're talking Hasidic texts that take the ideas from Kabbalah and they have their own teachings explicating them for us because Kabbalah is kind of like um, nuclear physicist language. If you are a nuclear physicist, you can open the book and go, oh, what a wonderful idea. What an innovation in our field that they thought to do. The rest of us are like, none of this makes any sense. So the The reason we look at it through Hasidism is first because Kabbalah speaks in such terse, crazy um, acronyms and language that we can't access. 
also because Hasidism is making its own use of those texts. And Hasidism is interested not in the elite intellectual or even spiritual flights of practitioners of Kabbalah. They are interested in how do we bring this down to the everyday Jew in the pew? How do we bring these lofty ideas to those of us who are living a regular life? Milk, think Tevya. How does this apply to Tevya? And while Tevya may not be so interested or Tevya's like, yeah, whatever, but you already lost me. On some level, that's what Hasidism is after. How do we take these, like reconstruct, how do we reconstruct the Kabbalistic text in a way that's going to speak to the Jews who are here tonight? Who took time out of your schedules, who drove here, who got here, despite some rain still drying on the streets, you're here. Um, How do we make it speak to you? So remember the other thing we have to remember when we're playing with these texts. Their starting place is Torah. Where they're going to start is the biblical text. Scripture is where they start. What they do with Scripture is turn it on its head, which is what we're going to see tonight. So we are going to play along with them. You don't have to give Scripture the same place in your life that it has in theirs, But as we've said before, in order for you to play in this playground, you have to accept certain rules. And those rules are, scripture is where everything is based. That is our building block. If you go to a pottery class, you don't expect to be working in oil paint. Because it's fine to work in oil paint, but if you're going to a pottery class, Oils aren't going to help you very much. You have to be ready to put your hands in clay. So I'm just going to ask you to suspend judgment about what place scripture or Torah has in our lives. And we're just going to like work in clay. And we're going to see what happens. Because every time I go to some teacher that says, I can teach anybody to do art. I'm like, not me. (laughs) And invariably, if they're a gifted teacher, guess what happens? They burst into tears. I burst into tears and I have a piece in my office that is framed now that I did at the women's retreat. I who can't draw like my name, um, right? Because gifted teachers, like that's what we're looking at. We're looking at gifted teachers, put your hands in the clay or the finger paints, whatever works for you and let's go. All right. 201. This is Nehemia Poland, who I've had the great good fortune to learn with in real life, an amazing teacher of Hasidic texts. So we're looking at Kabbalah, refracted through the lens of a Hasidic master, and Nehemia Polin, a contemporary teacher, has to walk us through all of that. And y'all are here because you need another person to walk you through all of them. So don't feel bad if you read this and go, uh, right? That's what we do. That's what we kind of count on is, um, it's job security. (laughs) All right, so let's look at the text. The text is from one of my favorite uh, masters, one of my favorite Hasidic masters um, that I study actually all the time. You can too, if you'd like, in a book by Rabbi Arthur Green called The Language of Truth. He takes the teachings of the Sfatimet, 
that we have here, and he explicates them around every Torah portion. Um, and so remember that Hasidic masters are known by the names. See, this is why I don't count on what the religious school leaves in the tray. I have my own. What does Sfat Emet mean? Yeah, exactly. Language of truth. This is the work done by Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger. Great Hasidic masters are known by their works, not by their name. His great work is the Sfat Emet, so he is called the Sfat Emet. Like the Hamlet. If I say the Hamlet, you know who I'm talking about as the author, don't you? If I say, we're going to now learn from the catcher in the rye, you know who I'm talking about. That's how it is for them. So the Sfatimet is Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Ger Rebbe. And we're going to look at his interpretation of some Kabbalah, which of course is going to be based first in Torah. So, we don't have the mic set up, so I guess I'll read. Okay. So on page 201. Our sages of blessed memory. This is the way we talk about the rabbis, capital R, from the rabbinic period. Our sages of blessed memory, meaning we're talking about the rabbis who lived in the time of the Talmud and the Mishnah, they taught that the evening service was tikaned, instituted, right, by Jacob. How many times do we pray as a Jew every day if you're a traditional Jew? Three. You have the morning service, the afternoon service of Ma'ariv, and you have of Mincha, and then you have the evening service of Ma'ariv. How many patriarchs do we have? The Talmud says each one of our patriarchs is responsible for instituting one of those times of prayer. How do we traditionally understand why we pray morning, afternoon, and evening? Mirrors the sacrifices. It mirrors the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Once the temple was destroyed, the rabbis needed another way, right, to to mimic the temple service. And so we instituted prayer at the same times there would be sacrifices, morning, mincha, and ma'ariv. What I'm telling you here, there's a revolution that's already happened in this first verse. You don't see it. There's already a hugely revolutionary idea being proposed in the Talmud. The Talmud says our three patriarchs each instituted a time of prayer. What is that saying? Why is that revolutionary? They're circumventing um, priestly Judaism. They are completely circumventing, replacing priestly practice with the rabbinic Judaism and saying it predates the temple. We're not mirroring the temple, God forbid. Those were the priests. They quietly... Go back to Torah. They go back to the patriarchs and say, that's where the three times a day originates is way before there was a temple. 
Because we know while the temple was still standing, already rabbinic Judaism was at work. A counter-movement to priestly privilege, to heredity, to access, to power, was already being challenged. Here in the Talmud, they go pretty far to say, three times a day prayer, we're not mimicking the temple. We're the original prayers in line with our biblical patriarchs who did it before y'all, before the priests. Okay, so holding that in mind, Now the, oh, but we have to, if you look at your cheat sheet that I gave you, the notes I made for you, the next thing I put on there is this verb tikain. Tikain, Jacob instituted. Tikain. Instituted. I don't know how else to say that. How else would you say that in English? It's not so fancy. Established. Great. Yaakov Tikain established the evening prayer. Everyone knows this from the Talmud, by the way. Everyone knows this. The people studying this are like, well, duh, we know that. But what do we who have been studying together these kind of texts? What do we know about this word? What does it sound a lot like? Tikkun. Nachon. And what is tikkun? Repair. Healing, repair, tikkun olam, the repair of the universe. Okay, so already, do you see? Already the playing was with Torah. Already we've got in the Torah that Yaakov, our patriarch, tikkened something. Well, that has got to have something to do with a kind of tikkun. What kind of tikkun is establishing the evening service ma'ariv about? Well, then you'd have to go look at the Torah portion because you gotta figure out if Jacob, if Yaakov, our patriarch, established the evening service, well, then you better go look in Torah about what's going on with Yaakov. Let's do that. And the Torah portion, by God, say, that's where you find Jacob. Genesis, it says, our patriarch Jacob's provision of a remedy of tikkun and pathway. Even for such people, so Jacob made a tikkun, for even such people who are not privileged to be within, as our own generations, we who have been expelled from our home, our life source. Literally, Yaakov makes a tikkun for people outside of where? Ah, interesting that that's where you go. Yes, yes, outside the temple and outside of, and outside of Israel. You all just did the math without even thinking about it. Outside the temple system, absolutely, George. That's what they're working outside of because they're outside of Jerusalem. They are outside of the land of Israel. You read all these texts about the temple and temple sacrifice and blah, blah, blah. Well, what about those of us who are living in Poland, who are living in Lithuania, who are living in, God forbid, New York? (laughs) 
What do you do then? What if we're not in the sacred space? What if we're not where Stonehenge is? Then what do you do about access to the sacred? That's what we're dealing with. But don't worry, because there's a tikkun. By the power of Torah, of course, and always, there's the power of Torah. Thank God. All right. How is this going to work? Well, in fact, there is a remedy to be found everywhere by the power of Torah. The biblical emblem of this power is our patriarch Yaakov of blessed memory. As scripture says, give truth. We find in Torah, in Micah 7.20, give truth to Jacob. And we know, if you're going to start using emet, truth, we know we're talking about Torah. Therefore, look at your cheat sheet that I gave you. Yes? If A equals B and B equals C, then A is equal to C. Yes? If Jacob, and we know from Torah, is that Jacob is about having been given truth, and truth is equivalent to Torah, then Jacob is equivalent to Torah. Right? Done. Jacob, truth, Torah. We're done. There's your proof. Pythagorean theorem has nothing on our sages. The Torah gives location and stability to everything. This is what our sages taught when they intended when they taught. There is nothing that does not have its place. Everything has its place. There's a location. We're going to look at place. That's going to be very important in this text. So I've given you on the cheat sheet... Write the next statement from Pirkei Avot. There's nothing that does not have its place. This is the meaning of the words. Now we're going back to Jacob. If everything has its place, Jacob is equivalent to truth, which is equivalent to Torah. That if we go back to Bereshit, back to Genesis, what do we see? This is the meaning of the words, and he alighted upon the place. Okay. Torah assures us everything has its place. Yaakov alighted on the place, if you look at Genesis, and he took from the stones of the place. Okay, that looks pretty simple. He took some stones. He alights on a place. He takes some rocks. Okay, it can't possibly, God forbid, mean that, right? You've been in this class long enough to know that is not what that means. My teacher, says the Sfatimet, Rabbi Yudalev of Ger, my grandfather, Rabbi Isaac Mayer Alter of Blessed Memory, the Alter Rebbe, explained that the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are called stones. Ah. Anyone who was here last time, you want to talk to me about letters? Letters <laughs> created. Ah, letters created the world. How did God create the world? How did God create the first things that were happening? Do you remember? It says it. God says it. And we say that like, well, and I don't mean to, to point at you, Reuben. I'm just saying, well, we all go, well, God says it. Like, but in, did you see I Dream of Genie? You could do this <laughs> and make the world exist. You could imagine it and then boom, it just exists. You could throw a lightning bolt and it explodes into reality. 
There's lots of ways to talk about creation of the cosmos. How does our tradition talk about it? God spoke. God talked. <laughs> of course the Jewish people. How does the world get created? God started talking. <laughs> and the words that God talked in order for the world to come into being, for anything to happen, you got to talk. Right? We know that as a people. If anything's going to happen, you have to talk. And if you're going to talk, you got to use language. And if you're going to use language, what is the talking that created the world? Words. Which words? Hebrew. The Hebrew letters, or light exist. When God started talking, light exists, it was Hebrew. Vayihior. The letters of the Hebrew alphabet are the created world. We know that. So that's like, okay, duh. <laughs> But from the duh, now we're getting a new thing. We, we, we move from duh, the world is created through Hebrew letters. We know that. But when Jacob takes from the stones of the place, according to the altar Rebbe, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet elsewhere are called stones. Those letters, page 202, the signifying traces of Torah are to be found everywhere. Of course. But note, there are some places where those traces are more manifest. Such, for our purposes, for the Sfatimet, of course, such as the land of Israel and the Holy Temple, where God's sacred name is invoked, and there are other places where the signifiers are disarranged. In Hebrew, be'ir buv. Be'ir buv is going to become important in our study tonight. Be'ir buv. Okay, be'ir buv. They are mixed up. The letters are mixed up. Out of sight. In such places, last sentences of the second paragraph on 202, in such places only the holiest individuals can discover the letters and arrange them appropriately. I don't want to go off on too big a tangent right here because right here I just feel like, first of all, I could cry. Second of all, Ain't a truer thing ever been said. We'll talk about it. We find this with the text of the Torah itself. There are some passages that can be understood readily according to their plain sense while others require interpretation. Absolutely. This is also similar to the rabbinic interpretive practice of removing a letter, adding a letter, and explicating a phrase or verse based on a rearrangement. We're going to talk about that too, right? Next paragraph. This is the meaning of the continuation of the verse in Genesis. This is the meaning. Talk about rearranging things and substituting letters and dropping letters and misreading things on purpose. This is the meaning of the next part of the verse. And Jacob took from the stones of the place and positioned them under his head. So already, is, is Yaakov in the Hasidic text taking stones and, and, and rearranging them? 
No. What is he taking? He's taking letters. Yaakov is taking letters, which are the building blocks of the universe, and he's rearranging them. This can't mean stones, God forbid. It means that on one level, of course, always. It means, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Really, what's he really doing? He's taking letters and rearranging them under his head, okay? Positioning, if you look at your cheat sheet, I've given you the verb. Positioning is synonymous with arranging. As in the verse, and they shall arrange the staves of the ark. So visamu, the, the verb is lasim, to put. He put the letters under his head, just as they put the staves of the ark into the sockets whereby they carried the ark. So it means to arrange it so that you can get the staves through the hole. That takes very careful precision, right? To make sure those pieces of wood go through those rings, you, you, you have to do that very carefully. It's precision work. So placing... Yes, placing, he put him under his head. You could read it that way, but if you pay attention and look at other parts of the Torah that has always revealed truth, God is trying to, rev- it to always give us secrets. If you look somewhere else, if you're digging for the secret, you see that it's not just putting. You just put staves through holes. You have to arrange them and then move them carefully enough that they go through both so it's something about arranging more carefully. Therefore, Scripture gives us Jacob's statement. And this stone that I have, Samti, again that same verb, put as a monument will be a house of God. So we've got that verb in three places. He put them under his head, which can really mean arranging. And then he puts a monument, a matseva, the same verb, They must be linked, of course. And this is the meaning of the Talmudic statement that Jacob instituted Tikain, the evening service. So we're done. We're clear. Yes. My work here has barely begun. Okay. So what? We go, okay, I get something of that, but really what's, what's the point? The scriptural reading that prompts this teaching is Parshat Vayetze. We just looked at that, Genesis 28, the story of Jacob's flight from home in Beersheba, his arrival in Haran, and the subsequent events. Before the Sfaremet begins his discussion of this parsha, he cites a Talmudic passage from Trakei Brachot on the origin of fixed prayer. Okay, we get that. Page 205, yes? Second paragraph. This is what we talked about a minute ago. Sfaremet's introduction of a Talmudic passage is already, before doing the biblical text, is already a revolution. And then he quotes the biblical text in order to support a reading that's pre-temple. That's already revolutionary. Third paragraph. To understand Sfaremet's method, we first examine some key terms in the piece. Perhaps the most salient word is tikkun, which we have translated as remedy. The word is fraught with significance in the mystical tradition. In Lurianic Kabbalah, it's a technical term signifying a process of cosmic restoration and reintegration. We know that, right? We've been learning together. We know that's true. Drop down to the end of that paragraph. As Lawrence Fine has explained, Luria, Rabbi Isaac Luria, 
the famous Kabbalist who has this whole idea of tikkun, right? And his disciples also use the word tikkun in a more individualized sense. So this is where the text is going to go. That to me is so meaningful. What is tikkun about? Why do we need tikkun? What happened? According to Lorianic Kabbalah, what happened that we need tikkun? The vessels broke. What was in the vessels? Of sparks of fire. Of God. God. God retracts from the world because everything was God. God has to retract God's self in order for the world to have a place to exist because it was all God. So God pulls back lovingly like a donut. Lovingly like a donut. Pulls back in love to leave a space at the center as in a donut. And now the universe has a place to exist. But God forbid the universe should exist without God. You can't have that. God doesn't want that, God forbid. So God pours God's self back into the hole. There were vessels meant to contain the divine as it slowly made its way. And there was a cosmic accident. They shattered. shattered. The vessels shattered. And now... Much of the physical universe we see are the clipot, the shells, the shards of those vessels, and in them is contained divine light. Pieces, if you will, of God. And every time we interact with the material world in such a way as to sanctify our experience, a spark of God is liberated and goes back to its source. When we eat... Being grateful for the friends around the table, the people who cooked the food, the people who grew the food, the people who prepared the food even before we got it, that we are thankful for a body that can digest food and eliminate food and its waste in the proper way. When we do that, every time we sit down to eat, we liberate sparks of the divine that's in the food. Every time we say a bracha, a blessing for what we experience, a rainbow, A thunderstorm. Someone differently abled. There's a bracha for seeing someone differently abled. We are saying we sanctify this moment and this encounter and we liberate a spark of the divine. It is our job, litakain, to repair not only this world, but if you take it further, it's our job to repair ourselves. Further, further, God. God. When we liberate a spark of the divine back to its source, we are repairing, in fact, the divine. We are restoring the divine to wholeness. That's our whole job, says certain parts of our tradition. That's why we're here. We are here to restore the wholeness of the universe and implicated in that is the divine. Okay. Svaramet is well aware of all of these resonances. Turn to page 204. Second paragraph. As Nachum Sarna observes, how did Yaakov get to the place where he's going to lay down and put some rocks under his head? What happened? Do you remember? How did Yaakov get where he was? 
Why is, he, why is he laying down and putting rocks under his head? Why is he not home? He was somewhere else, he was somewhere else for sure. I forget where. Yeah. What did Yaakov do that got him in trouble? He stole his brother's birthright and then stole the blessing of the Bechol, of the firstborn. How did he do that? He deceived Isaac, who was blind, and pretended to be someone he wasn't. He pretended to be something he wasn't and received a reward for that. We don't know anything about that, do we? <laughs> pretending to be something we're not and getting rewarded for that imagine that so that happens to Yaakov and as a result the consequences when he's found out when he comes out what happens Esau is so angry that he has to flee because he's going to kill his brother Yaakov has to flee he's a fugitive from his own acts of betrayal, his own acts of pretend, his own acts of being somebody he wasn't in order to get the rewards that you get when you pretend to be something you aren't. That's how he finds himself in this place. That is not inconsequential to what the mystics are talking about. It is when we are out of place because we have put on a costume. Remember, he puts on literally, right, the hairy skin of Asav. He goes to great lengths to pass as someone he's not in order to get what his mom helps him say he deserves. But to get it, you got to be somebody else. And when that's exposed, it's usually pretty bad. You keep on talking about place. Is that the Hebrew word makom? Makom. So why do you bring that up, Bert? Because of hamakom? Uh, yeah. Makom. The Hebrew word for place. And Bert says, huh, is that like hamakom? The place? What is hamakom, Bert? Sometimes used for God. That's how we talk in our traditions. One of the names for God in Judaism. Do you think Jacob just alit on a place? <laughs> Bert's already gotten to the rabbis, of course. You see Makom in the Torah? You gotta think Hamakom, the place, capital P, which is the, one of the rabbinic names for God. So he's utterly alone and friendless, embarking on a long, perilous journey. He alights upon a certain place. We should understand that the place does not appear to be special to Jacob in any way. Hamakom, even the place, capital T, capital P, we're often like, is this really what I'm having for dinner? They said this was a really good restaurant. Like, look, even confronted sometimes with right, the greatest gifts, the greatest opportunity to meet the ultimate capital U. We're like, but it's lukewarm. <laughs> it's kind of chilly at this table. 
He doesn't notice anything special about the place. And for the rabbis, you have to hear exactly what... You have to hear the place, like, you know, Sunset Boulevard, and the place. He doesn't see anything special. (sighs) You think? So let's talk about that in a minute, Jody. Spiritual power and proximity to heaven are the last things on Jacob's mind. He is a young man in perplexity, confused and troubled by the family dynamics that have been revealed and intensified by recent events. It's one thing to have them revealed. It's another thing that something happens and they get kicked up about 14,000 levels. The only thing he knows for sure is that his brother, quite understandably furious, may indeed be in hot pursuit right now. Jacob hopes for nothing more than a safe, quiet, uneventful respite from his troubles, a pause in his breathless decamping. It is for this reason that the dream and the vision of God are so astonishing, so unexpected, so transformative. Drop down, next paragraph. We have been expelled from our home, our life source, for the Sephardimet, it means exile from the land of Israel. We can read it in so many ways, can't we? Fill in the blank. Exile from what? Home? Normalcy? What was expected of us? What they thought we should be? What we were told we had to be to be loved? Fill in the blank. Those of us who have been expelled from our home. We're going to drop down to... Sfatimet creates a latticework of correspondences between the biblical Jacob finding unexpected divine presence, promise, and protection, the Talmudic Jacob's institution of Ma'ariv. What is the evening service called? Ma'ariv. I'm going to write it right under this other word I wrote earlier. Anybody see any similarities already? Ma'ariv, the evening prayer, and the Hasidic master's own efforts to construct religious meaning and spiritual power in the face of ideological and social instabilities of urban modernity. Those of us who are professional Jews sit with this question day in and day out, and it keeps us up, and sometimes we wake up gasping for breath at three in the morning. For y'all, I get it. That's not the issue du jour. For some of us, we still wake up sweating, asking this question. How do we do it in Warsaw? How do we do it? This business that some of us care so much about in America, Westside LA, 2015. Y'all have TVs. Y'all have treadmills. You have jacuzzis. You're not there. You're here tonight. We have a thousand families. That's about 5,000 people. Not in any way to take away from how many of us are here. How do we do it? West Side of LA, America 2015. We're out of place. How do we 
make it compelling? How, how do we make it relevant? Who cares? Who cares? At issue here is the meaning of sacred place, which in Genesis is a specific geographical location. Drop down to the last sentence on the bottom of page 204. Last sentence. For the Talmudic rabbis, however, sacred place comes to include synagogues and study halls. So for Yaakov, there's a specific sacred space. For the rabbis, it becomes synagogues and study halls outside the land of Israel, outside the temple, outside the understood sacred places. So that could mean Pacific Palisades or Duluth, Minnesota. Or South Range, Wisconsin, even. If we stretch our imaginations really, really far. While retaining the locative notion of sacred place. So it's not that every place is sacred. There's still locative stuff going on about place. This space that we're in is different from other spaces, I hope for us, right? It also might be a favorite point on a hiking trail and a favorite place on the beach or a favorite grandson's bed and stuffed animals. So there's something specific about location. We're not trashing that idea. The idea, though, is could we expand the notion of sacred space? That's what they're doing with this incredibly radical reading of Yaakov laying down Bamakom and rearranging what's going on. For the rabbis, middle of the first paragraph on 205, holiness is found in the word and the heart as much as in geography. Sfatimet continues and extends this process, our teacher that we just read, making explicit what in the Talmud is largely implicit, that Torah study, Reuben and Blanche and Bert and Richard and Ella, that Torah study is not just the learning of eternal truth or interpreting divine will, but the active creation of meaning, of sacred domains limbed, by mind and spirit. What is that saying? Susan, you who are regulars at Torah study, you who are regulars at Torah study, what does that mean? It means that every every Sabbath when we get together and work together, we're creating sacred space. And whether you're arguing about a single word, often we don't get you don't often, as Jews, get past the first word in Torah study because everyone's going to argue about it. Yeah. Enid always wants to go to the next paragraph. Like, let's move on, some people say. And other Jews say, no. Let's argue about this one thing. So how is that sacred? I, I don't, it just is. I mean, you know, it is. We're... We're keeping God, Judaism, ourselves alive. George? Yes, I think it's within oneself. Yeah, that's my question. Isn't it where you are? It is. 
So talk to each other. So George says it's within the self. And Jody, you say yes. How is that so, what George says, that it's in the self? So it's wherever you are. It's in geography. Ah, so I carry it with me. So wherever, whatever makom I'm in, if I have it going on, it's by definition a sacred space. It's like saying, show me the space where God isn't. It's right here. Is that what you meant? (laughs) George is like, Richard? Isn't it more like every every place has the potential to be a sacred space? Ah. You have to do your own rearranging of the stones in the place where you walk. So these folks are saying, you carry it with you wherever you go. And then when I'm there in that makom, it becomes hamakom. It becomes godly. It, it becomes sacred because I've brought that with me. There's another interpretation that says, all places are mostly the same. What's the difference? I come to the place, Richard is saying, and I start rearranging the letters. Let's look at that. It's in the meeting of God. If God is only inside of me, then when I die, God dies. All right, so hang on. We're going to Richard's point first, because that's where this is going. 205, second paragraph. In this reading, what saves Jacob... He's a, he's a fugitive. He's alone. He's terrified. He's been diagnosed with stage four. God forbid a million times somebody's died. Somebody lied and your job is gone. Everything pulled out from under you. What saves Jacob is his ability to, quote, assemble the stones of the place, to Richard's point, around his own head. According to Sfat this means that out of the shambles of his fugitive life, Jacob arranged an edifice of meaning, a coherent conceptual structure, a Torah of, and I'm going to change the word here, I know it's printed, the, I'm going to say a Torah of that place. Not the place you pick. Not the place you want a vacation. I watch The Real Housewives of Orange County. (laughs) Don't tell anybody. Not Tahiti. That's easy. You look at the blue waters. You look at those little cabanas like out on the water, safe on their little spits. There's a beach. That's easy. But the Torah of that place that Yaakov was in, it's stage four. In like manner, each generation is bidden to take the particularities of its own place and time, its own existential circumstance, and shape them into Torah. So Sfatimet would say, let me call a wambulance for you, Rabbi Amy. That's your job. That's our job to take it and shape it wherever we are, whatever time we're in, whatever circumstance we're in, whatever happens, and make it into Torah. But isn't that almost the essential part of Reconstructionism as opposed to Orthodoxy? Ah, a good question. Anne asks, so doesn't that define in some ways Reconstructionism over and against orthodoxy. What I'm going to say to you is these are texts revered by orthodoxy. So I agree. Reconstructionism is different. 
How is it different? In my mind, we own, celebrate, and completely are comfortable moving into the ways that we need to reconstruct, the ways we need to rearrange the stones, rearrange the letters for our own time in the makom in which we find ourselves. Orthodoxy wants to say, that's what it's always meant. It meant that from Sinai. It's, it's always meant that, right? And we just don't, we don't apologize or pretend that that's what it always meant. It means something different because we're in a new makom. We're in a new space. They did the same exact things. Right, that's been, but the whole notion of Judaism changed based on its environment. We're reading classic Reconstructionism here. Mordechai Kaplan would love this text. Because it says, take the stones of the place. Take the letters of your situation and rearrange them so that it can be hamakom. It can be godly. It can be holy. It can be insightful. It can be enlightening. It can be life-changing. It's not going to be pretty, usually. (laughs) It's not that this is easy or comfortable. He's not in a good place. And isn't that what holy people do? Let's go there, because I think this is really important. Drop down to the middle of the next paragraph. It is dark. The, the sentence that begins, it is dark. Yes, you see it? It is dark. Jacob's fortunes seem in decline. The sun is setting for him. He's lost, confounded. He is, to use a word from our text, in a state of confusion, all mixed up. This word, he's all mixed up. To the extent that he can assemble the stones of his place into a structure of meaning, he has indeed, in doing that, prayed the first ma'ariv. Did you pay attention to the... Sounds that repeat. It is the same root. So, so, so prayer, is a, prayer is a technology for eliminating chaos. Prayer as a technology for eliminating chaos, says Richard. Yeah. Yes. But, and I'm saying but on purpose. But by mixing things up. Right. Right? So, yes, it's to bring an evening service. How do we say, what's the prayer book in Hebrew? Sidur. What is the root of Sidur? Seder. What is Seder? Order. When you're going to go pray the evening worship, you better pick up a Sidur. You pick up the map of order. So that's what Jacob did. He instituted, turn to page 47 for the barhu, right? That's what he instituted. It's all ordered now. Ma'ariv, the word itself for that service, comes from mixed up, confused. Evening is a confusion of light and dark. That's when we pray ma'ariv. We pray it when there's kind of this mixing up of day and night. Hama'ariv aravim, who evenings the evening is the prayer we say. So that very state of confusion is also the solution. 
somehow the confusion and engaging fully with the confusion, the discombobulation, the disordered, the falling apartness of it all leads to sidur, seder, order that can hold us through which we can find God. Holy experience. Our own holiness, our own peace, our own sense of it's all right. There's something bigger even than this situation, even than this decline, even than this I don't know if I'm going to survive it. My loved one is going to survive it. Is the chemo going to kill her first? I don't. It killed my father. It killed my father. I watched it kill my father. Even in that, through that, what is the way to ma'ariv? To a sense of rearranging the letters to have some kind of experience of hamakom. Not just makom, not just hospice. Not just there's nothing more we can do for him. That's the makom you're in. Hamakom is what we do when we rearrange the letters. Page 206. Second paragraph. Middle of the paragraph. Sentence begins as the Talmud. As the Talmud frankly acknowledges in order to make a drasha, an interpretation, work... Elements of the text may need to be rearranged. Last sentence. This is an activist construction of meaning. I love that. An activist construction of meaning. Approaching Torah as an activist. But not an activist who's going to necessarily take to the streets. That might be part of it too. But an activist of meaning says we are going to rearrange the words. We're going to drop a letter or two. We're going to purposefully misread this word in a way that brings fuller meaning into our lives. Drop down to the paragraph that says finally. Finally, the piece is manifestly about sacred space which, as we've said, is no longer limited to special chosen locations such as the Holy Land and the Temple, although, of course, they're particularly manifest there, but is anywhere we create a perimeter of the sacred by arranging the stones about us meaningfully. On some level, there's no excuse anymore. If you're going to say, well, we're not in the land of Israel, so we can't do that. There's no priesthood. Even outside of Judaism, there's no confession for me. So why do I have to bother? I'm queer. I'm whatever. So there's no confession for me. There's no return for me. So I'm done. Because they threw me out of the sacred space. Guess what? Not according to this. (laughs) Sacred space is anywhere we create a perimeter of the sacred by arranging the stones about us meaningfully. 
paragraph, only the holiest of the holy can rearrange the stones. Ah, so George is reading what I skipped by accident, <laughs> which I alluded to earlier. Thank you, George. In some spaces, I would argue, only the holiest among us can work with the most unseen. Right? He's talking about like what's most unseen, where you don't see any you don't see any hamakom in the makom at all. I think Auschwitz. I think the killing fields. I think a child raped by their own parent. Because there, really, most of us, we can't do it. We can't. And I think this is a way that I respect this vitamin by saying, and that's just how it is. Because most of us, that, that's too much for most of us. But you take a Mother Teresa, you take a Gandhi, you take a Dalai Lama, the holiest of people have the capacity somehow to take the stones of whatever makom they find themselves in and it becomes hamakom. I can't do that. I'm very clear. Something happens to my kid, take me out. Take me out of the game. I'll, I'll find the drugs myself. Like, I, I'm done. I'm very clear. And then it happens. And some people move on. And dig into life. Most people move on, Anne says. Some become holy people, doing the work for other people of helping them walk through what we think we can't survive. And so maybe it's not just that they're holy to begin with, but something happens and they become holy in a different way. That, for me, is a redeeming part of this text, that he says, only the holiest among us, in some cases, where it's so invisible, we don't dare to suggest, oh, just rearrange the stones, it'll be fine, right? That in some places, only the holiest among us manage to rearrange the letters in that place, and we are all humbled when we are in their presence. so susan lifts up the fact that this didn't happen naturally and so easily for jacob he starts out really bad bad. like he does some really bad stuff he's encouraged by a parent who says this is what you need to do so he, what is it, is it better that your Abraham's son with, is with a knife over you? I don't know. But like, okay, mama's boy, papa's boy, you lay on the, on the things and let him tie you down and lift a knife over your throat? That's better? I don't know. But okay, but he actively, Yaakov actively does some pretty bad stuff with the stew, the lentil stew business. That was pretty ugly. And then the like skins and like disguising himself and passing himself off as somebody else to steal his, you know, retirement fund. That's pretty bad. He took his pension. That's pretty bad. So it's not, it's not the holiest of us, George, who start out on this. Like you said, and Susan is saying, yeah, not only is it not the holiest among us, but it's the pretty bad of us. That is also, for me, the redeeming part of this text. 
Yaakov starts off deceiving everybody and stealing through his deception, stealing his brother's whole future. And it's he who gets to this place. Isn't that hopeful for all of us that we can start wherever we are doing all the mishigas we do, all the selfish, me, 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 grabbing, tricking, lying, stealing, playing, covering, pretending that we do to get praise, to get approval, to get money, to get car, I don't know, to get status, to get love. That's most of us. How wonderful. Even Yaakov, who we like to think is even worse than us. It's funny that you say that. I'm always bring it personally. Well, that's the idea. We're supposed to bring it personally. <laughs> but I, um, I am going to a thing where I'm, I'm, I'm really recognizing people I know for that. Um, through and through. And they don't know it. They don't look at themselves in the mirror. They don't see what they're doing. And you can't talk to them. And that's just how they're going to live out their lives. And some I know have died already. And were um, people of valor. The community called them people of valor. And it's really getting to me. So Audrey's bringing up the point that there are people the community lifts up as people of valor who turn out to be, in her experience, bad, kind of through and through. No one else seems to see it. The emperor has a brand new ermine cloak <laughs> that is so beautiful. Right, that's kind of what I was talking about, right? So the emperor <laughs> has no cloak, but oh, his cloak is his cloak is so beautiful. His crown, he's naked. How come no one sees? A lot of people don't want to see. They don't want to see. It's so much easier not to, isn't it? Isn't it so much easier not to know? Oh, now you've jumped. <laughs> Two, it's awful to confront yourself. You were talking about the people who don't want to see the machers with their clay feet. Now you jump to, it's awful to see ourselves, isn't it? Isn't it? Yaakov? What happens to Yaakov? He deceives his brother. He has to flee from home. He never sees his mother alive again. What happens to Yaakov? How many children does Yaakov have? A lot. A lot. Reuben's been in Torah study. A lot. His youngest, for most of the story, is his favorite because it's his beloved. His Rachel's son, Joseph. What happens to Joseph? He gets sold into slavery by his brother. He gets sold into slavery. He gets thrown in a pit. Then he's sold into slavery. By his brother. As far as Jacob's concerned, he's dead. He's gone. It's hard to see ourselves. And often, like it keeps banging you in the head. Like, you know, you didn't look, you didn't look, you didn't look. And then things happen. Consequences happen. That you lose what's most beloved. And I don't mean literally in the case of, God forbid, 
you know, his, his son being like killed. What I'm saying is he who was after all this other stuff realizes at the end what he really loved was gone because he didn't pay attention. He didn't see himself. And I think what I'm saying to you is it happens a lot. That, yeah, they may not see themselves. They may not get it. And yet, they really lose in pursuing all that other stuff. They lose what's most precious, and at some point, they often get it. That my son's dripping coat has been brought to me. He's alive. He's fine, by the way. Joseph is fine. He's not dead. But Yaakov is given a dripping coat and says, it's over for me with him. And that's true. It's over until he's very, very old. So... Yaakov arranges the stones, and then he has... Bringing us back to the point. Thank you, right. Bert. He has a dream, <laughs> right? He's a experience, yes. A vision. He says, God, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. Ken. God was in this place, but I, I did not know. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner has a wonderful book, if you've never read it. It's a fabulous very small paperback. God was in this place, and I, I did not know it. Order it. It's fantastic. Small, short, well-written, easy to access, and I don't mean to insult anybody. I mean, I'm tired at night. If it's too much, I'm like, it must be lovely, but I don't have the click. I don't have the energy, right? Beautifully written, about the many layers of spirituality involved in that verse. Let's close out on page 207. One of the tasks of today's telling the story of the Exodus is to articulate the order hidden in the chaotic events of long ago. We try to discern divinely imposed order where the original protagonists were confused and bewildered by their oppression. Back to this word. Here, the hermeneutic enterprise becomes an instrument of liberation, reforming our understanding of past events and, in a sense, the events themselves. This is our work. Every single one of us, this is our work. We take the chaotic events the trauma, the oppression, the seeming meaninglessness of so much of what we've walked through. And we try to discern some kind of order where the original protagonists, five-year-old Amy, seven-and-a-half-year-old Amy, 12-year-old Amy, is completely confused completely crushed, completely disillusioned, tortured, in pain, alone, afraid, betrayed, fill in the blanks. The hermeneutic enterprise, what's a hermeneutic enterprise? Taking the story and interpreting it. The hermeneutic enterprise of taking the story and reinterpreting it becomes an instrument of liberation, reforming our understanding of those events. And in a sense, the events themselves.
can revalue the events themselves. Doesn't mean they change. Doesn't mean anything about them changes. Our interpretation, our sense of bringing some order out of that by a connection to ha-makom. We're in a lot of makoms, a lot of mikomim that seem absolutely terrifying. We're alone, on the run, misunderstood, or betrayed, or having caused it ourselves by betraying somebody else, by lying, by stealing what didn't belong to us. Doesn't matter, really. You're in that makom, the chore, the sacred spiritual work is to rearrange the letters, rearrange the stones so that we draw from that meaning. That is a connection to hamakom. And in that place, we are always safe. We are always seen. We are always loved. We are always held. We are always respected. We are always our fullest, truest, best selves. May we commit to doing the work every time we're in a makom that feels chaotic, that feels overwhelming, that feels estranged, that feels oppressive, that we find a way, even alone, bereft, terrified, horrified, whatever it is, that we find a way to bring Ma'ariv to that place. A sense of, I can do this and bring order and rearrange the stones, the letters, that I am always in Hamakom. I am always held in the place, capital P. We say to mourners, may the one we call the place comfort you among all the mourners of our people. We are all mourners of some child in us that got stomped, of some potential that got crushed, of some dream that got ridiculed, of some kid that was left out, of some teenager really hurt. That's all of us. May we find Hamakom, the place, capital P. May we do that here in this sacred space, often in good health, and may have Esrim to 120. Have a great evening.